Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Kimberly Atkins, in for David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. A solemn day, that's how Democrats describe the decision to take a vote on continuing their impeachment investigation against President Trump. House Intel Committee Chairman Adam Schiff says they will go where the facts lead them. We take no joy in having to move down this road and proceed with the impeachment inquiry, but neither do we shrink from it. President Trump and Republicans in Congress standing defiant in the face of impeachment. Republicans, including Minority Whip Steve Scalise, slam Democrats for an unfair process and say it shouldn't be Dems who decide who's in the Oval Office. Clearly, there are people that we serve with that don't like the results of the 2016 election. That's their prerogative. But the country next year will be deciding who our president is going to be. Also this week, the leader of ISIS is dead, killed in a U.S.-led raid on his compound in Syria. President Trump announced mission accomplished from the White House Sunday. He died like a dog. He died like a coward. The world is now a much safer place. This hour on Point, the roundtable on the week that was. Join us. We want to hear from you. What did you make of the impeachment vote yesterday? Do you think more people will support impeachment when public hearings begin? And do you think the president did anything wrong in his call with Ukraine's leader? Join us anytime on onpointradio.org or on Twitter and Facebook at On Point Radio. With us from Washington is Sam Stein. He's politics editor at The Daily Beast and an MSNBC contributor. Sam, welcome to On Point. Oh, thanks for having me. And also with us from Washington is Anna Palmer. She's a senior Washington correspondent at Politico. She's also the author of the daily newsletter Playbook. Glad to have you here, Anna. Glad to be here. And from Hanover, New Hampshire, On Point News analyst Jack Beatty joins us too. Hi, Jack. Hello, Kim, Sam, and Anna. So I want to start off uh, about this uh, House impeachment vote, which took place yesterday. Sam, Democrats have been saying all along that they didn't even need to take a vote as more Republicans uh, demanded that they uh, that such a vote take place. So what does uh, what did yesterday's vote do? Does this does this go against the Democrats narrative or does it uh, play into it? Well, depends which vantage point you have. Um, Democrats have been enduring criticism from Republicans for some weeks now about the opaqueness of their process and the lack of formality. And so to a certain degree, taking the vote yesterday was uh, designed to eliminate that strand of criticism to say we have formally begun this impeachment process and you can't criticize us for not doing so. Of course, that was not satisfactory to Republicans who said the stuff leading up to now was therefore illegitimate. But putting that aside, the the second thing is that Democrats wanted to bring this to what they've described as a public phase of impeachment, which means uh, they wanted rules of the road for how these public hearings will go and including who can ask the questions, how much time each side will get, who can call the witnesses, who gets to decide if those witnesses are legitimate, and how the transcripts of the previous private depositions will be released and handled. And so when they took this vote, they set a standard of rules that they will now abide by. And it should give us a roadmap for the weeks ahead in which we're going to get uh, these transcripts and we're going to have these uh, potentially explosive public hearings. And yesterday, prior to voting on the resolution laying out these rules for the impeachment inquiry, uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi argued the process was fair and transparent. These actions, this process, these open hearings, seeking the truth and making it available to the American people, will inform Congress on the very difficult decisions we will have to make in the future as to whether to impeach the president. That decision has not been made. That's what the inquiry will investigate. And then we can make the decision based on the truth. 
And Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy had a different perspective. He and other Republicans took to the floor before the vote to slam Democrats for what they call a sham process that boils down to sour grapes over the results of the 2016 election. Today is more than the fairness of an impeachment process. It is about the integrity of our electoral process. Democrats are trying to impeach the president because they are scared they cannot defeat him at the ballot box. That's not my words. That's the words of my colleagues from the other side of the aisle that has offered impeachment three different times. This impeachment is not only an attempt to undo the last election, is an attempt to influence the next one as well. So, Anna, talk about the White House strategy here. Are Republicans fully united against President, uh, behind President <laughs> Trump here? Yeah, I think we've seen a lot of different strategies coming from the White House and particularly from President Donald Trump, who has been leading the charge here. There has not been a real unified or um, kind of systematic effort. I think there's been a lot of criticism and pressure put on the White House to try to staff up, to try to find, you know, put together a war room because this is not going to be over in the next week or so. This is going to be uh, the next at least month, if not longer than that. I, I think they, for the first several weeks, as Sam mentioned, that it's been a process argument that they felt that it was happening behind closed doors. Now they're going to go into the public phase of this. The question is going to be, do House Republicans participate? Uh, do they actually ask some of the, the questions that they say that they haven't been able to ask? And then I think the other real question is, what's the next kind of talking point? How are they going to defend on this? I do think House Republicans, uh, you know, are very much behind the president on this. I think you're going to start hearing that this is just a sham process. This is about in, in interfering in the in the 2016 and in the 2020 election as what they're going to start to push back on this. And Jack, uh, talk a little bit more about how the Republicans have been uh, responding. What do you think about their response, which has focused mostly uh, on on the process and not so much on the substance? That's right. They've avoided the gravamen of the charges against the president just to talk about closed-door meetings and armed guards and the like. But they have taken two positions I think we're going to hear more of that are broadly accordant with public opinion. By 58 to 37, the voters agree that the election, not impeachment, uh, should be decide Mr. Uh, Trump's uh, fate. And that's the point that Kevin McCarthy was making in that uh, soundbite we just ran, uh, that, yes, the public, by a small majority and sometimes just a plurality, uh, seems to favor impeachment, but by impeachment, it's as if people in the aggregate are saying, well, yeah, we want the facts and we'll be the jury come November. That's one argument they're making that is broadly in tune with what, you know, a large majority thinks. The second, and you're going to hear more about it, is you're getting nothing done. I've read this week, it, it shocked me, frankly, that Mitch McConnell has told his colleagues that a trial in the Senate could last six to eight weeks. That's nonstop talking about impeachment. And the Republicans are going to say, look, this just vitiates the Democrats' claim in 2018. You said They said, elect us and we'll take care of prescription drugs. We'll deal with guns. We're going to make life better. And if if any legislation has passed that has been signed into law, I'm unaware of it. And so they're going to be able to say it's a do-nothing Congress, and it's essentially – the Democrats essentially ran on false pretenses in 2018. I want to get to some of our callers. Julian is calling from Honolulu, Hawaii. Hi, Julian. Hi. Um, I just want to say that um, I keep hearing the commentators on the radio, on the television, the, the politicians, the, the Democratic candidates trying to explain why there needs to be an impeachment. I mean, the evidence is out there. Now they have to explain why they need to impeach instead of proceeding with an election. And the answer is obvious, and they keep missing it. And if they don't lay it out there for people, they're going to fail with impeachment. And the reason is simply this. You cannot have the president use the power of the presidency to coerce or, or pressure a foreign country to interfere in your elections 
or you cannot have free and fair elections. You have broken democracy if you say that that is permissible. You don't need to talk about national security or the situation with if you know Russia invades Ukraine, although I'm very concerned about that, mm. or, or about the self-dealing and corruption. You just need to say that he will break the democracy if he allows this to happen. Well, I want to give I want to give our chance our guests a chance to respond to that. Sam, what do you think? What do you think about that messaging? Do you think that Julian's right? Well, not only is he right, um, that's the prevailing sentiment of the Democratic leadership in the House. Uh, they want to keep this relatively narrowly focused uh, and they want to do it in an expeditious manner. And they want to make sure that the main conversation is not about Trump's self-enrichment or any other moral shortcomings that he's had other than what he's done with respect to uh, enforcing or enhancing a quid pro quo uh, with his dealings uh, with Ukrainian leadership. And um, the caller, Julian, is is, actually, is absolutely on point with that. Um, they, they make the case that um, this has to be dealt with through the process of impeachment and not through the ballot box precisely because – uh, he has tainted the ballot box process, that uh, he has shattered uh, public trust in the integrity of our election system by using congressionally passed military assistance as a lever to go after his domestic political opponents. So that is the message that I'm hearing from leadership. Now, there are, to be fair, there are others in the party who think that there should be no timeline mm-hmm. um, for how you handle this, that this, if, if the facts keep popping up, you got to pursue them. And if it takes you well into the calendar year of 2020 and the election, then so be it. They also don't think that the uh, impeachment inquiry should be limited to just what happened with Ukraine. Um, they I, look at... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I want to ask Anna quickly before we go to break. Uh, a, a, a lot of the presidential candidates on the Democratic side sit in the Senate. And with this timeline, you're going to have them in a trial right as they prepare to go to the early primaries. What do you think that will uh, – what effect will that have? I, I think it's going to be very complicated. Does Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and these senators uh, – you know, break from the campaign trail and come and sit for hours at end, it's hard to see that actually happening. All right. We're ta- we're talking about the House vote to advance the impeachment inquiry into President Trump, Republicans' defense, and the president's strategy to stay in office. You can join the conversation. What do you think of President Trump's former national security advisor? Will he show up to talk next week? I'm Kimberly Atkins. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balance scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balanced scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures, There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. 
Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu. This is On Point. I'm Kimberly Atkins. The U.S. House voted largely along party lines yesterday to approve rules for moving forward with impeachment, Democrats calling more witnesses next week to testify behind closed doors before they take this process public. We're also going to get to the U.S. raid that killed ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and where the White House stands on a trade deal with China. You can join the conversation. Do you think the impeachment process has been fair so far? Do you support Republicans who say the president has done nothing wrong. Follow us on Twitter and find us on Facebook at On Point Radio. We have a smart panel of guests this hour with me, Sam Stein, politics editor at The Daily Beast, Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent at Politico, and our own On Point news analyst, Jack Beatty. So I want to get to uh, House Intel Committee Chairman Adam Schiff. He told reporters uh, he was appalled by Republican attacks on Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman ahead of his testimony this week, but he also expressed concerns about the safety of whistleblowers. Take a listen to what he said Wednesday. The president's allies would like nothing better than to help the president out this whistleblower. Our committee will not be a part of that. Uh, We will not stand for that. Uh, And I would hope that more of my GOP colleagues throughout the Congress on both sides of the Capitol would express their support for whistleblowers who have the courage to come forward and expose wrongdoing. Uh, they have the right to remain anonymous. Uh, they certainly should not be subject to these kind of vicious attacks uh, and other words and actions that threaten their safety for doing their patriotic duty. So, Anna, w- describe uh, how the Republicans have been responding to this testimony uh, from Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, a reminder that he is a uh, Iraq war veteran. He has a Purple Heart. He was a career civil servant when he came forward. Talk about the reaction to his testimony and why the whistleblower is still such a big topic among congressional Republicans. Yeah, I, I think – it was interesting I, I, what Adam Schiff was saying. Actually, we did hear a Republican leadership, including Liz Cheney, uh, come to his defense because you had some uh, right uh, conservative uh, people on, in the media, and particularly on television, trying to kind of put forth uh, that, that he he wasn't you know uh, uh, he he wasn't a patriot, and that he was potentially you know kind of advising Ukraine and being a double agent uh, in kind of conspiracy theory uh, conspiracy theories, which was pretty crazy, honestly. I mean, in, a, in in Washington, where every week it's kind of stunning that the fact that they were trying to dispute his honor and kind of the veracity of what he was saying was was fairly uh, unusual. It's, it's a tactic that uh, the president has used in terms of the deep state and things like that. But clearly, he was a very serious person and, and had, you know, kind of corroborated what uh, has already been out there in terms of what the president was saying on the call and his concerns about it. Uh, I want to uh, play a, a clip of former Republican congressman and now CNN contributor Sean Duffy uh, questioning Lieutenant Colonel Vimmin's loyalty to the United States in a CNN interview this week. It seems very clear that he is incredibly concerned about Ukrainian defense. I don't know that he's concerned about American policy, but his main mission was to make sure that the Ukraine got those weapons. I understand that. We all have an affinity to our homeland where we came from. He has an affinity, I think, for the Ukraine. He speaks Ukrainian. He came from the country and he wants to make sure they're safe and free. Now, CNN anchor John Berman aggressively questioned the rationale for Duffy's attacks of Vindman, highlighting that he's currently an active duty service member and received a Purple Heart for his service in Iraq. Jack, he also came here uh, when he was three years old with his family, uh, and several of his family members have served in the military. What do you think about this particular line of attack against uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman? Yes, and he's also Jewish. Uh, it's it's somewhat inaccurate to call him Ukrainian in that respect. Uh, and of course, the, ch- the the charge that Duffy made of you know <laughs> dual loyalty 
is one of the tropes of, uh, of, of anti-Semitism. Um, and it was a shameful moment. I, this, uh, a new low for, for television commentary, it seems to me. And Laura Ingraham on her program uh, had similar sentiments and someone even questioning, I think it was John Yoo, the Bush era uh, attorney of some infamous repute. It was you who said uh, perhaps this was even amounted to espionage that that this that that uh, Vindman was interested in, um, in in making sure that Ukraine got the aid that Congress had approved for it. Uh, there's no low to which a certain segment of right wing opinion won't go to tarnish anyone who's opposed to Trump. And 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 we and crucially, we learned from Vindman that the uh, what what uh, Mr. Trump again and again has called the exact transcript was not an exact transcript. Things were edited out or not included that should have been and how that will materially change what what that transcript says remains to be seen. I want to go to Mark on the line from Appleton, Wisconsin. Hi there, Mark. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I think all of this pattern of Republican behavior in the Congress and then other things like gerrymandering, um, when Democratic governors win in states like mine in Wisconsin, then the legislature leaps in to curtail their powers. It's all of a pattern that Republicans have convinced themselves that they are the only ones who are smart enough and patriotic enough to govern, and nobody else is. And so they accept what Donald Trump is doing, which is so clearly wrong to anybody with, with, I mean, it's just obvious that it was a quid pro quo. I mean, it's just ludicrous to imply that it's not. And just twisting thing, I mean, even going back to Comey is against Trump. If Comey was against Trump, he never would have come out with that press conference or announced that Hillary Clinton was going to be elected again 10 days before the election. Comey helped Trump win the election, and yet he's, he's the enemy of Trump. Mm-hmm. But they're convinced that anything anybody does is against them, and that somehow, the, but at the same time, they are the only ones who have the right to rule. And let's not forget Merrick Garland. Thank you. Uh, Sam, what do you think about uh, Mark's point there about the, the Republican stance? You're putting, me <laughs> you're putting me on the spot here. I don't know if there was a question in there so much as a point. Um, I... Uh, w- Naturally, every politician tries to, um, at, to some degree, uh, hold on to power. It's very rare for anyone in elective office to uh, not think uh, that they are <clears throat> not entitled, but that they are uh, uniquely situated and suited for the role that they play. Uh, if you talk to politicians on a day-to-day basis, uh, they tend to be uh, more narcissistic than the general populace at large. I think you have to be, to a certain degree, to jump into elected office. I, I do think, though, uh, that Republicans have done a uh, craftier and maybe more sinister, depending on your vantage point, uh, job in trying to game the system to uh, their advantage. And I think uh, gerrymandering, while it does happen in other states that Democrats run, like Maryland, uh, it's more common, it appears, in states uh, with uh, Republican leadership. Um, and, you know, the courts uh, at the state level are knocking it down now, but it, not at the federal level. Uh, with respect to uh, Trump and Comey, uh, you know, the history is the history. I don't know if I have anything <laughs> additional to add on that front. Well, speaking of courts, uh, coming up, we are expecting uh, John Bolton, former National Security Advisor, to be called uh, in, as these impeachment inquiries continue. Uh, he's saying he needs to be subpoenaed. There are other White House officials asking the courts to weigh in and say, hey, we've been directed not to cooperate. We've been subpoenaed. What's the answer, Anna? Will we have to wait for the courts to make rulings here before the Democrats can move forward? Well, some of these hearings are going on right now uh, at the U.S. District Court level. Don McGahn uh, and, and others have have kind of turned the courts to say, do we really have to testify or not? And their argument saying that they don't want to. Uh, the courts have been skeptical of that so far, but we haven't had a ruling. Uh, I think that this is part of the reason why we're going to this public phase, because uh, the, the House Democrats know that kind of the the big testimony so far uh, has come out and that basically the State Department officials that have come voluntarily are just corroborating what's already out there. I, I don't anticipate that John Bolton is going to come forward unless he is forced to speak um, to, to, to House Democrats. And a reminder that he does have a book coming out uh, sometime next year, so uh, we'll, we'll may have to we may have to wait for that. Uh, it, this all will be uh, covered as well on Monday on Monday's show, where 
uh, the panel will look at the week ahead in the news. So stay tuned to that. I, I want to transition now to uh, the other one of the other big pieces of news of the week, and that was uh, the killing of Abu, ba- Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi in Syria. The head of ISIS, Trump, uh, gave his uh, gave his big address to the nation on Sunday, saying that uh, al-Baghdadi died like a dog. Jack, it seemed that Donald Trump won at the same sort of moment that Barack Obama got when Osama bin Laden was killed. Did he get that moment? Well, politically, I think he did. And his ads, at least on Facebook, are already uh, registering that. This, uh, you know, in a pretty barren uh, competition, this looks like his major foreign policy achievement. Uh, so undoubtedly, it's a it's a it's a victory for him. He couldn't let it pass, however, without um, the Trumpian flourishes, the you know sort of grooving to the cruelty of the moment, and so on. And yet, it is noteworthy that I've heard military people say, "Well, good thing that he he concentrated on the quote cowardice of this." Of this, uh, of this, you know, public enemy number, world's most wanted man, because that helps to uh, rob him of uh, of his charisma among his followers. So, uh, uh, whether how it compares to uh, the Obama raid and so on, we really don't know. There seems to be a view, though, that it was hurried, that this mission had to be rushed. It was successful, but it had to be rushed partly because of uh, Trump's impulsive decision to pull the troops back from the Turkish border and that that complicated everything, sped up the timetable. However, it was a success. And Sam, one of the biggest criticisms of the president's uh, decision to pull troops from Syria uh, was the fact that it could allow ISIS to to expand again after all of these years of fighting to to try to to constrain it and 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 knock down that caliphate? Did the the killing of al Baghdadi put push against that narrative of of the critics of Donald Trump? I think superficially, yeah. Um, it's easy for the president to say, "Of course, I'm, I'm beating back ISIS while simultaneously pulling back U.S. troops from Syria because I've." successfully killed the head of ISIS. I think people who study this issue in more depth uh, will note that um, simply eliminating Baghdadi as the head of ISIS doesn't eliminate ISIS itself. Uh, Already there's a successor that's been named um, in that you're going to end up having to deal with a much more diffuse, uh, harder to uh, grapple with network of terrorist uh, groups uh, in light of this. Now, uh, I'm not an expert in uh, counterterrorism measures, uh, but it's fairly clear to see that uh, from the reaction of Trump's pullback, a number are very worried about it. And it, you're already seeing small adjustments the administration is making, uh, leaving some troops in eastern Syria ostensibly to uh, fight counterterrorism missions, but also what Trump says is to protect the oil. Um, and so uh, obviously within the administration, there is uh, differing opinions on this. And certainly on Capitol Hill, there's been a, an immense amount of criticism for what uh, Trump's done from both Republicans and Democrats. And in another piece of news, uh, trade talks uh, with China, with the ongoing trade war, uh, it was announced uh, that the uh, APEC summit would be canceled. Uh, That is leaving the trade talks between Donald Trump and Xi Jinping uh, hanging in the balance. Uh, Anna, with the president focused so much on the economy and with the economy playing such a big role in his reelection, what does this news mean for him? Yeah, the White House has said that they're going to continue uh, the talks and they're going to find just another venue. Uh, I, I think it is definitely a disruption towards finding a, a path forward on U.S.-China relations. It is going to be critical for him. I don't think you can overstate how important a, a deal on this is uh, ahead of the 2020 election, as you said, just given some of the states that he needs to win and some of the, the, the kind of key voting blocks in rural America who are really feeling the 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 burn of of what has happened between US and China relations as as related to you know prices of of corn and and soybeans and things like that and uh, in other news, uh, the House passed overwhelmingly uh, a, re- a resolution uh, on the Armenian genocide uh, for uh, 405 to uh, 11. Uh, Jack, talk a little bit more about that and what that means. 
Well, in uh, a 1935 speech, Hitler asked, who, after all, speaks today of the annihilation of the Armenians? Well, Congress spoke uh, about it this week, and for the first time in nearly 40 years, uh, passed a resolution using the word genocide for what was a planned annihilation of the Armenian people by the Ottoman government uh, in 1915-1916. Uh, and that has been a uh, the, 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 um, the way our relations with Turkey and in secondarily even with Israel have entered into our silence about this great crime in history is, is shameful. Uh, I read, for example, that as late as 2005, when an, our ambassador was appointed to Armenia, he, he, he said the Armenian genocide was the first genocide of the 20th century. He was recalled for saying that and forced to retire. That's just a, a blot on our, on our whole record. And, of course, America should be proud of its part in exposing the Armenian genocide. The American ambassador Henry Morgenthau and American consuls throughout the Ottoman Empire documented the slaughter, the systematic slaughter uh, effort to, to, to kill a whole uh, people. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 that, and that is a, a sort of American achievement. It's interesting that uh, President Erdogan, uh, his, his response to it was, uh, he said, uh, American lawmakers have no right to give lessons to Turkey. Of course, there he was referring to the evil of Amer- in American history, slavery, which uh, today remains, uh, uh, while we don't, uh, it, 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 you can make the case that the gap between scholarship uh, about the Armenian genocide and popular opinion in, in Turkey is similar to the gap between what scholarship says about slavery here and what general public opinion says. We have our own evil to face up to. Uh, on Twitter, a comment from Jamie Bentz uh, says, when, as we discuss the impeachment inquiry vote, it's worth noting that two Democrats voted against it. Uh, that is Colin Peterson of Minnesota and Jeff Van Drew of New Jersey. Uh, just quickly, Anna, anything to read in about those votes? I think it just looks at, you know, where where they are politically. Colin Peterson in Minnesota is one of the most conservative Democrats uh, that remains in the House. All right. Uh, coming up, we'll be discussing the state of the 2020 race and how social media companies are playing the political game. You can join the conversation. What did you make of Twitter's decision to ban political ads? Who is your pick for the Democratic nominee? I'm Kimberly Atkins. This is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the stolen bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm WBUR Washington correspondent Kimberly Atkins. In other news this week, the wind is slowing to help firefighters get a handle on the major blaze in California, the Kincaid Fire, that's now burned nearly 80,000 acres. But still, new fires are popping up across the state, taking down homes in its path. We're also talking about the state of the 2020 race. Elizabeth Warren just released her Medicare for All plan, and Kamala Harris's campaign is on life support. Who's your favorite candidate? 
Do you think the impeachment inquiry is helping or hurting President Trump's chances in 2020? Follow us on Twitter and find us on Facebook at On Point Radio. Uh, Back with me is a great panel of guests, Sam Stein, politics editor at The Daily Beast, Anna Palmer, senior, senior Washington correspondent at Politico, and our own On Point News analyst, Jack Beattie. I want to start our conversation uh, talking about California Congresswoman Katie Hill, who resigned from Congress uh, this week and uh, after rules took effect um, uh, after uh, after she gave a final four speech this week to explain her decision to resign uh, after an ethics investigation. She says she received threats that made her fear for her life since intimate photos of her were released last week. I am leaving now because of a double standard. I'm leaving because I no longer want to be used as a bargaining chip. I'm leaving because I didn't want to be peddled by papers and blogs and websites used by shameless operatives for the dirtiest gutter politics that I've ever seen, and the right-wing media to drive clicks and expand their audience by distributing intimate photos of me taken without my knowledge, let alone my consent, for the sexual entertainment of millions. I'm leaving because of a misogynistic culture that gleefully consumed my naked pictures, capitalized on my sexuality, and enabled my abusive ex to continue that abuse, this time with the entire country watching. So, Anna, those those pictures that she talked about were published on uh, conservative sites and a British newspaper. Uh, she admitted to having an inappropriate relationship with a campaign campaign staffer, but denied having an inappropriate appro- uh, relationship with someone in her congressional staff. What does this mean that this is the first person to resign under these new ethics rules that were meant to stamp out uh, allegations involving Me Too? I think there's a couple of takeaways. One, I think it's hard to to see it being a double standard in that if it was a male a member of Congress who had similar uh, inappropriate relationships or relationship and had photos like that, that they also wouldn't step down or, or feel the pressure to step down. I do think this is the, the first woman who's faced this in office in the U.S. Um, I, I think it also really shows the, the era that we're in, that there's millennials now that are in Congress, that the the digital kind of footprint and, f- you know, the fact that we all have cameras in our phones uh, all the time, that is something that you know, Nancy Pelosi in a, in a private meeting said, you know, th- th- we should all be wary of, of this next kind of, you know, the ability for photos to be taken like that. And I want to turn to 2020 today. Uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren released the details of her Medicare for All plan. Recall that uh, after a couple of debates, she was criticized for not coming out to say whether or not middle tax uh, the taxes on the middle class will go up under the plan. Today, she released the, the de- some of the details that said that they would not go up under the plan. She also said that uh, it will cost less than the $52 trillion dollars uh, that the current system uh, costs. But that current system, she says, leaves 24 million people without coverage. She says her plan would cover anyone. Sam, if this plan will not raise taxes on the middle class, why didn't she say this during the debates? <laughs> well, I'm reading through the plan, or I was reading through it uh, so far uh, this morning, and it's complicated. I think th- this is the reason she didn't talk about uh, the specifics in, uh, during the debates. She didn't have the specifics. It takes a lot of um, ingenuity to come up with what I think she estimates to be about a $20 trillion over 10 years shortfall and how to come up with pay-fors for that. And what she does is she looks under every rock, essentially. Uh, there's cuts to defense. There's uh, reconfiguring of payment systems to hospitals and doctors. There's uh, levies on businesses foreign uh, income for corporations. Uh, there are taxes on the rich. There is a uh, interesting uh, way to make sure that the current payments that employers uh, make towards their workers' premiums are frozen in place and redirected towards the government. All of these are delicate, complex uh, policy prescriptions that uh, will, you know, in their own right and on their own, uh, cause an immense amount of political debate and industry pushback. Uh, but she does somehow, I guess, thread the needle here, which is she does not actually increase the income tax levels on people, on middle class earners. 
I don't know if that's going to satisfy her opponents. Uh, I know Joe Biden is already out with a statement criticizing uh, the plan uh, for eliminating private insurance and taxing middle class people, what he alleges. Uh, but at least she now can in future debates say, listen, I you know, did my work. I did my homework. I put out a plan. Where's yours? And what does yours do to make sure that everyone in America is not just covered, but covered with the substantial and comprehensive benefits that my plan uh, would also cover? And Jack, speaking of Joe Biden, uh, he's not only uh, going going uh, up against Warren on this Medicare for all plan, but they're also sparring over his decision to allow super PACs uh, to back him after uh, many of the other candidates, including Warren, uh, took a no corporate PAC pledge. Uh, Warren said that it was disappointing. What do you think about this move as Biden faces an increasing number uh, of, of attacks? from the president and his supporters uh, about his son's work in the Ukraine? Well, uh, it doesn't help him with the the optics. Uh, the Democrats uh, found religion on, on super PACs and PAC money. It is, of course, uh, Biden can note the irony that Elizabeth Warren uh, started out the campaign with, I think, a $10 million war chest from her Senate campaign in 2018. And and, and there was PAC money in that. So she's, she's not taking it now, but she did take it then. Um, uh, frankly, I don't think this is going to matter to anybody. Uh, where uh, and, and, and the vice president has got to be able to finance his campaign. It is, though, so telling that his campaign is having such a tr- such trouble raising money, even from uh, people who are uh, you know who, who are the pros in this, mm-hmm. uh, you know the big givers, uh, and it 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 forms a, a it, it sort of is a piece of evidence filling out the profile of a outstanding piece of journalism in New York Magazine this week with the uh, chilling title zombie campaign, that this campaign of Biden's is a kind of zombie campaign that is that his, uh, his 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 advisors really are more therapists than advisors. They're always trying to buoy his morale, that he really doesn't know what he's doing, that he's panicked and not getting having enough money is one sure reason why. Uh, Christopher is calling from Buffalo, New York. Hi, Christopher. Hi. I'm throwing my support entirely behind Amy Klobuchar. I think she is the perfect middle-of-the-road candidate that can bring voters from all sides. I know people such as my father who went from Obama to Trump. I, I know that he would support Klobuchar, and I think that she would carry the left as well as the middle and could really bring everyone together and bring us back to some sense of normalcy in such an intelligent and moderate middle-of-the-road way. She's the best candidate, in my opinion, by far, and I really think that she needs to be paid attention to far more by the media, by fundraisers and donors. I know she made the November debate, which I'm very excited about. She's yet to qualify for the December debate, but hopefully she will be on that stage um, pushing her message of getting back to everyday work for for everyday Americans, um, really bringing those Midwestern values to the White House, and I think that is something that the Democrats should not discount. I think that Elizabeth Warren is too far to the left, and Amy Klobuchar is that perfect, perfect again, again middle-of-the-road candidate that can really bring a lot of different voter groups together. Christopher, Christopher I appreciate uh, that call. Uh, now I want to go to Daryl, who is calling, or uh, Darrell, apologies, who's calling from Buffalo, New York. Hi there. Hi. Yes, overwhelmingly, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren. I just feel that she's just fighting for all of Americans of all classes and categories. Uh, she is, has a dynamic plan, vision, and future for America, and it's time for women to take charge. I mean, I'm a guy. Of course, I have no problem voting for a woman if I feel that she can uh, handle the job. And I feel that Elizabeth Warren really is the perfect candidate for all Americans because she wants equal opportunity. She wants fair income equitability. And she can definitely defeat Donald Trump. 
All right. So we have uh, support being shown from for Senator Klobuchar and Senator Warren, Warner. Uh, Anna, I want to ask you about another woman in this race, Kamala Harris. This week, uh, it was reported that she has slashed her campaign staff. They're having trouble uh, fundraising. We've seen her slip in the polls, particularly in Iowa. She said she was going to live in Iowa, putting a lot of focus there. And the polls show that it's not paying off. What do you think is happening there? It's surprising. She had such a strong rollout. And I think uh, certainly among kind of the professional political operatives in Washington, she was seen as a real formidable force uh, potentially in this this race. But as you said, I mean, she's really struggled to find her momentum, uh, to connect with voters. I think a lot of her debate performances have have been pretty shaky. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see if she can try to find, uh, you know, her momentum here this fall where she can get some of that enthusiasm back. Once the money starts drying up, it's really hard to get it to turn back on. And I think if you're kind of looking at a crowded field and you have a lot of donors that I've been talking to that are very realistic about what, you know, who can beat Donald Trump. And I think they're really trying to figure out what horse is the one that they should be backing. Jack, another piece of news. The jobs report is out. Uh, 128,000 jobs added. That's despite the fact that uh, the recent automotive strikes uh, took about 60,000 jobs uh, out of the October report. President Trump, again, the economy is something he is running on for reelection. How do you think uh, what kind of economic picture does this paint for the president? Well, um the growth rate, 1.9 percent, the president called that, uh, greeted that news. He called it the greatest economy in history. In 2012, when the growth rate was 1.9 percent in one quarter, he said, quote, the economy is in deep trouble. So I guess it depends upon where you uh, where you sit. Uh, this is his strong suit running on the economy. This it, growth is slowing. On the other hand, no one, these the economists I'm reading, foresees a recession. And indeed, the economic models are predicting a Trump victory. Mark Zandi at Moody's Analytics, uh, he's run 12 different uh, scenarios using the economic numbers, the low unemployment and so on. Uh, and, he, and in all 12 of them, Trump wins and in some cases wins handily, going away. Now, is the economy going to be the big issue of the of of the election? We don't know. But the president is is in a good position to be able to say, I'm you know, uh, my economy is booming along, except that, of course, it looks like by the time he enters ends his term, his economy will be growing at just about the rate that the Obama economy grew over its last four years. All right. I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, This week, we heard from former President Barack Obama uh, at his foundation summit in Chicago. There he addressed what he says is a major problem in our political discourse with what young people call wokeness. This idea of purity and you're never compromised and you're always politically woke and all that stuff, you should get over that quickly. The The world is messy. There are ambiguities. People who do really good stuff have flaws. There is this sense sometimes of the way of me making change is to be as judgmental as possible about other people. And that's enough. Yeah, Sam, when I was uh, hearing uh, President Obama say this, I thought of things like Ellen DeGeneres, who faced a a tremendous blowback for for sitting next to uh, former President George W. Bush. What did you think about President Obama's uh, comments in the current climate? Well, thanks for coming to me as the wokest member of this panel. I appreciate that. Uh, You know, I think he gets at a sentiment that's – well, it's obviously generational, um, but it's one that I I believe uh, older generations do share, uh, which is that um, a lot of our political problems come from a place where uh, people are just not talking to each other, uh, not willing to compromise with one another, uh, not willing to – uh, share trust in the institutions of governance uh, and believe that upheaval, revolution, uh, dramatic change is realistically the only way to get things done. Um, 
I think the irony here is that um, the two Democratic candidates who are most associated with wokeness um, are both uh, in their 70s, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. Uh, And actually, despite their public reputations as um, unapologetic liberals, uh, which they are, uh, in Bernie's case, a socialist, um, they do actually have track records of bipartisan achievement. Mm. Um, Bernie Sanders, for instance, his main legislative achievement uh, in the Senate was a bill that he did on veterans affairs reform that he co-authored with John McCain mm. uh, as the uh, ranking member of the uh, Veterans Committee. Oh. And McCain, when he was still alive, talked to me about it and, and applauded uh, Bernie Sanders for the immense amount of compromise that he uh, allowed to allow that bill to come forward. And the weird coda to this story, and I'll end on this, is that that bill is now um, the one that Donald Trump champions repeatedly as saying he provided choice to the VA system. It wasn't Trump's bill. It was a Bernie Sanders bill. And just quickly, one piece of news I wanted to uh, talk about is the World Series championship going to the nation's capital. Uh, Sadly, as a Red Sox fan, we had to relinquish that, but I'm (laughs) glad it went to Washington. Uh, That was Sam Stein. He's politics editor at The Daily Beast and an MSNBC contributor. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent at Politico and co-author of Politico's Playbook. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks. And Jack Beattie, as always, On Point's own news analyst. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. You can continue the conversation and get the On Point podcast at our website, onpointradio.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, I am Kimberly Atkins, and this is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the Balance Scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.